Hello, my name is Christine Murray and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Projects on disused urban infrastructure, such as the New York High Line and Paris's Jardin de Rouilly, have led us to reimagine what happens to railway tracks when we're no longer using them for trains. The Camden High Line won planning approval in 2023 to transform a piece of network rail infrastructure into an elevated park on railroad tracks. Today, I'm speaking to Simon Pitkeithy, CEO of Camden High Line, Georgie Street, Head of Projects at Camden Green Loop, and Tatiana von Prusen, co-founder of Camden Architecture Practice, VPPR, about getting this ambitious project off the ground. Well, welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to kick off with you, Simon. Tell me a little bit about your work um, at Camden Highline. So we're trying to build, uh, sorry, I'm Simon Pitt-Keithley. I'm the chief exec uh, of both the Highline Charity and also a thing called Camden Town Unlimited, which is, I think, quite important to how we've got uh, as far as and as fast as we have uh, with this. So yeah, we're trying to build an amazing park in the sky that's going to run between Camden Town and the back of King's Cross, uh, a la New York, a la, a la Promenade Ponte in Paris. Um, the French were there first, by the way. People don't often know that. A bit like America, the French got there first. Um, uh, and it, it, yeah, the, the, the French Highline predates the New York one. Uh, but we're copying that. And indeed, we hired a, a very similar team to the New York uh, team to build our Highline. But we started off uh, with a, an academic at UCL looking at those brownfield railway sites in London that could accommodate something like a Highline. Check with Oliver O'Brien from UCL. And um uh, there was an article in the local Kentish town, which is a sort of local um, review rag uh, that was seen by an ex-board member of mine who worked for Arup in Canada at that point. Uh, he got the email, he forwarded it onto me, said, you should do that. A little while later, he retired and moved back to Kentish town. So I said, right, you can be our chair now. Um, and that's kind of roughly how we got going. But I, as I said a minute ago, I think using the business improvement district, Camden Town Unlimited, that makes sure that people like myself and Georgie and the rest of the team are kind of already there, bought and paid for, has been a really important part of the journey and helping us put in that groundwork when there really wasn't funding in those early days um, to get the thing going. Um, yeah, and we can talk more about that if you're interested. So I think the, yeah, so you've got this starting point, which sounds interesting. Let's do a highline, let's find one, which which uh, which is um you know, inspired by these other bits of infrastructure and the success of them. Um, and then you start to put together this this team. What comes next then? You know, you've kind of identified this, you know, potential place. Um, you mentioned about the importance of the bid. Right away, did people start to galvanize around this idea? Is that how you got the momentum to get going? How much push did you have to put in? I, th I think there was, there's a bit of both, really. I think, you know, we started out just talking. We went and did a lot of those back of the pub kind of meetings, lots of kind of little walks, tried to engage with local people as much as possible, obviously local politicians and the, um, the landowners where we could, um, particularly the commercial ones. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of iterative process. But we then launched a crowdfund back in 2017, and that really helped with that engagement. We tried to raise the money. It was basically to do the feasibility. That was the thing that really kicked it off, that crowdfund to work out how possible it was. And, of course, get network rail in some way excited about something as crazy as this. And 
that's because Network Rail, of course, owns this piece of infrastructure. Presumably that was identified early on. How were those early conversations and what was key to getting them excited? I think the key was was luck and timing. Um, so I think partly, again, because we also run the Business Improvement District for Camden Town, we also run a Business Improvement District in Houston. And we were doing quite a lot of work down there around the what was then the fledgling ideal less developed idea of HS2, let's not go there. But, um, you know, we were doing a lot of work in and around the network rail pieces with getting to know people really. And I think it was, it was through a really good board member at network of, 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 of the Houston bid um, who worked for network rail. And we were able to say, look, we're trying to do this mad thing. How would we approach? How can we get in? And I think he really understood what we were doing as well as helping us navigate into the system. And I think that was absolutely crucial. Um, I also think people like Peter Hendy, who's the chair of Network Rail, really gets the high line. Um, and I think that has been been helpful. And and although people do talk about Network Rail being sclerotic and slow and stuff like that, and I'm not saying they're pacey, um, but once they kind of get the idea of something and get into it, actually our, our experience has been they're being really positive to engage with. I know people don't say that, but it's true. So the Camden Highline fits into some other strategies for the area. And uh, we have um, Georgie here with us to kind of talk about that. Georgie, can I ask you a little bit about this um, Camden Green Loop? How does the Highline fit into that project? Or does the Green Loop actually <laughs> predate the Highline? Is it kind of the other way around? And and what is this kind of vision for, for a loop? Hi, I'm Georgie um, and I'm Head of Projects at Camden Town Unlimited. Um, and yeah, I think the, the Green Loop certainly came after the Camden High Line. Um, and we first kind of started formulating this idea as a way of tying together all of our public realm projects, which didn't seem to make kind of natural sense together, but actually we're all working towards um, an aligned strategy that we had for um, the Camden Town and Euston neighbourhoods. Um, and it was during COVID COVID really that some of the notions of the Camden Green Loop really took hold and people started to really, really relate to ideas like, um, you know, better or more strategic meanwhile use, um, pedestrianising roads, um, having communities more involved in the co-design of their local public spaces. So that's really where it, it kind of took hold. Um, and so it's become a strategy that's not just an internal kind of talking shop. It's more um, outward facing. It's about including communities and really valuing lived experience in the design of public spaces to create spaces that are truly flexible, um, that kind of improve the connectivity between communities. And we really believe that by creating these um, more beautiful and flexible public spaces and better connecting our neighbourhoods, um, both business and resident communities will really thrive. So these are pedestrian um, spaces. Do you have any of that continuing? I mean, has the argument been won about the power of, uh, you know, pedestrianised walking paths in terms of helping businesses? I think it's definitely still an ongoing conversation and very um, controversial, obviously. And I think it's really important that in all of our projects and all of our proposals, we are properly listening to what businesses need um, to, to kind of function on a day-to-day -day basis. Obviously, taking away the potential for deliveries to happen is just not going to be conducive to um, a, a normal business operating. So there's, there's no point in, in kind of putting forward proposals that are going to be so difficult 
for a business to function with. Um, instead, we're looking at more kind of flexible uses of spaces. As I as I said, I think flexibility is really key. Um, you know, enabling communities to have more involvement in the use of their public spaces um, but that doesn't necessarily mean permanently pedestrianizing them and locking out the use that local businesses would have as well so i think it's more about creating spaces that are more inclusive the role of the business improvement district is just getting more and more um, influential in the placemaking spaces. I mean, we're seeing these kind of big, grand projects being led by bids or being a kind of uh, supported and encouraged by bids. Uh, what do you think makes them kind of uniquely placed to really uh, bring forward these public space initiatives? Um, well, I think, um, firstly, I think I think that the bid, Bid world is, is is still a new phenomenon. I mean, they've been going about 40 years in the States, but we're, we're quite a bit behind here. There's something like 70 in London and 300 in the country. You know, they have sort of proliferated without people noticing too much. A lot of them, I think, do still focus on that Christmas lights, hanging basket type of stuff. Um, I, I personally have a quite a deep hatred of a hanging basket. Um, not that I hate flowers, but it's just the, the sort of limited ambition I think they represent, you know. Um, but of course, what a business improvement district is, is just a vehicle that's got a bank account, a professional team, um, an opportunity, and often, you know, a board that is willing, if, you know, appropriately encouraged to back things that are a bit more risky than a local authority can or a private enterprise on its own can. And I think that space that we sit in, and I would probably say this may sound like a criticism of bids, but I think it's a unique place to sit and a great opportunity. And I think bids could do a bit more of trying generally to understand and exploit where they sit and use it better. I mean, we also run another charity called Camden Collective, where we take over Meanwhile Space. We've had 18 spaces in the last 14 years and we give away most of it free to young creative startups who wouldn't have those sort of opportunities, who the market's not taken care of, but have good um, business ideas and can bring that kind of entrepreneurial spirit into a place and wouldn't if you didn't create the space for them, if you like, as well as creating those opportunities for people who wouldn't otherwise have them. And again, it's another one of those things that if bids don't, then who's going to? Because it's hard. It's very hard getting, I mean, like as with the Highline, getting your hands on the space is almost one of the hardest pieces of of, of, of work. Uh, and it's the same with, with most meanwhile stuff. So I suppose I think bids are, bids are, are starting to wake up to the opportunity. And I think um, not being dragged too close towards the needs of the property owners, for example, or becoming a kind of extension of the town hall is the challenge, really. Can you sit in that public-private space appropriately? Hanging baskets and Christmas lights are expensive, uh, but what you guys are trying to do costs a lot more than that. Uh, and of course, there's kind of ongoing cost of maintenance of these, um, you know, spaces and initiatives too, which I'm sure, you know, some some uh, places would really struggle with. But of course, I mean, uh, you know, Camden is a vibrant um, neighborhood, but also has some areas um, that uh, that will really benefit from access to you know to kind of renewed public public space. So uh, you know, can we talk a little bit about about the money and the funding? Presumably, the this there's not enough coming into the bids coffers. I mean, if somebody doesn't understand how a bid is is funded, typically you know private business owners will have to um, you know kind of contribute a certain amount. Uh, but I guess you know how is this funded beyond that? Because this is well. This is a, a a much grander project than than turning on the Christmas lights. 
Sure, sure, sure. Um, uh, so the Business Improvement District, which is funded by, on, by a levy on business rate payers, um, uh, for those who don't know, uh, and is elected into being every five years. So you have to demonstrate value to your electorate. Um, so to date, the million pounds that we've raised and spent has broadly come from uh, rough, you know, roughly in quarters, the Business Improvement District itself, the businesses, some donations from the landowners at each end, um, a bit of crowdfunding and things like that, as I talked about. And we still get lots of lovely donations from local people um, and, a, and a chunk of repurposed Section 106 that the council was able to free up that couldn't be spent as part of a development elsewhere. So it is a sort of weird collection of funding. And I think that's building on that is how the next tranche of capital funding it's going to come. So I think it'll be more, some more of that public sector stuff, some more of the stuff from uh, businesses, some more from the landowners. High net worth individuals are also being very generous, so I need to acknowledge. Um, and the trust and foundation world, we hope to also be able to access. So I think that sort of coalition of funders will help us with the capital. And then for the for the maintenance, which we've done, you know, there's a business plan for how we're going to do this. These things are, are not cheap to maintain because they we don't want it to be amazing. We want it, just, we don't to stay amazing. You know, it's gonna, not going to just st start amazing. It's got to stay amazing. Um, uh, and, and unfortunately, we don't have that philanthropic model they have in New York where the, the, the great and the good have dinners and competitively write checks. Um, so a lot of that is going to have to come from commercial sponsorship and so on. And I often um, tease local people that we might one, one day have to call this the Smirnoff Highline. Um, not that that's the ideal name, but it's really about helping people understand that free to access amazing parks in the sky require a lot of work. Um, and I was in New York looking at their operation a few weeks ago and they employ something like 140 people. I mean, it's a big, big operation. Now we're not the same scale as them, um, but it just gives you a sense of how, yeah, the, the, the charity that is the Camden Highline will continue to have to do an awful lot of work to sustain and maintain this park once it's open. And then look at kind of, you know, the film sets and private revenues. Presumably you're looking at different kinds of events. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there is there is some that you can do with that, but actually it's quite it, it's quite limited. You, you know, there's only so many um, events you can have. You, you want to keep it open to the public. Um, it has got some good deep sections where you could do certain things like that. Um, but I think the majority is going to have to come from that sort of commercial sponsorship stuff. We're not, we're not, we're, there's not going to be a load of sort of commercial um, retail things up there. Um, so it, we, we really have to kind of work the sort of actually more traditional sponsorship fundraising things that charities would normally do, you know. Have you written a covenant that it'll be free and public access to all? You know, we we all are haunted by the the thankfully never built uh, garden bridge, which was going to charge us, I don't know, seven quid to walk across it. Uh, you've kind of said this is public, this is free, this is, you know, open yeah, it's, access. It's, I don't think we've written a covenant. I don't think I've, I've tattooed it on, on my arm or anything. But but yes, that's that's always been the 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 aim we have no expectation of ever charging um for, for access no it wouldn't do it and i do like to say uh, whenever i get the chance that we could build the whole of the camden higher line for less than they spent not building the garden bridge and some of that's because okay. we're not building a new thing you know it's it's existing brownfield site that we're just providing access to you know and that's a beautiful segue to you, Tatiana. Um, I'd love to welcome you in now to talk a little bit about that existing site. You know, what what did you find? What is there? And uh, and then we'll kind of start to talk about the vision of of what it will be. 
So my name is Tatiana von Preussen. I'm a director of VPPR Architects. We're a local practice and um, we won the, the design competition along with Field Operations, James Corner Field Operations, who um, designed the Highline in New York. And I actually used to work for Field Operations. And so that was the connection in the team. Um, VPPR are functioning as local uh, sort of architects and also working on the kind of built on the built structures and field operations are leading the team and they're doing all of the landscape work. Um, so, um, I mean, you know, obviously one of the big constraints is, is just been the space and um, the High Line is running along an existing live railway. Um, it's a viaduct, an old Victorian uh, railway viaduct um, in North London, from uh, which is the, the section of line that goes sort of between Camden Road Station and um, towards uh, Caledonian Road and Barnsbury. So it's a part of that part of the line. If you're on the train, you can look out of the window and you can see on one side the overgrown um, tr old track, uh, would have been an old track uh, for freight trains. Um, and so one of the huge constraints is that you've got live trains up there. It's also one of the amazing qualities of the space, which makes it very different from Promenade Ponte and um, the New York High Line. And you think, oh, maybe it's not very pleasant to have the sound of the train or, you know, it's noisy or, or, or whatever, but actually it's incredibly soothing. Um, you're up there and most of the time it's completely quiet. You can't hear the traffic below at all somehow. And then all of a sudden you get a, a low frequency kind of rumbling of a, of a slow freight train coming past or the overground. And it's a very kind of special experience. Um, so one of the key things was to try to retain the, that quality. Um, there has to be a wall, obviously, for safety reasons between the, the public part and the live line. But... Um, we work field operations to create something that's very transparent. Um, it's a kind of mesh wall where you will be able, you'll have viewing holes, you'll be able to see the trains. Um, so all train spotters of all ages will be able to um, have the same experience that we've had going up there, which has been, um, you know, incredibly exciting, uh, being able to have access to that. And one of the things that we wanted to bring across in all aspects of the design was that sense of, discovering these um, inaccessible spaces in the city. Uh, we've enjoyed just the site visits, like, like a child, you know, go up there and, and have this experience that you never normally have. And we want to make that something that everyone else can experience. So we're trying to do as little as possible almost with the design so that people have a, as, um, you know, as an authentic experience as possible um, to sort of discovering this found, found objects. But of course, I'm sure there are many challenges in terms of accessibility and, you know, you talked about making it safe in terms of dividing it. I think it is quite an interesting point of, of difference that this isn't exactly 100% disused. It's very much, you know, part of a of, of functioning bit of city. And actually, that's, that is kind of, I would say, a wonderful part of it. I remember taking my kids to several, there are several parks in London that uh, playgrounds that overlook trains and they always call them the train park or it doesn't matter how many 
either are and love to kind of stand up high and watch those trains go by. So I'm, you know, it is kind of a magical um, thing to be able to watch the infrastructure. Uh, but in terms of other challenges around accessibility, um, you, you know, this, I'm assuming this is up above the ground. How are we getting up and getting down? Are there existing access points and how much do you need to do in terms to, to, to improve the ability of people to, um, to move around the space? Yeah, I mean, currently, um, the only way to get up there is through Cannon Road Station. Uh, and maybe one day that, that if we, you know, negotiations uh, are successful, there may be an, an entrance off the platform. Um, but actually, we're going to have to create new stairs, new lifts. Um, it's The viaduct is pretty much eight metres off the ground, um, off the street level. Um, the biggest entrance, the kind of grandest entrance is at Camden Gardens, which is uh, a sort of triangular um, mini park. Uh, it's a little bit feels like a traffic island at the moment. Has very bad antisocial behaviour um, problems uh, because it's not really surveyed. It doesn't really have people moving through it very often. And so, and that's that is um, that park is bisected by the viaduct. So there are three huge grand viaduct arches that run straight through the park. And that was just because of. Um, sort of Victorian planning, the park was built and then the train just ploughed through that part of the city. Um, and I, I mean, that, that is interesting, the history of that, because um, the train really just um, pays no heed to the streets, grid um, or, or, or anything else. And what it means is that by opening up the High Line, it creates a very direct pedestrian route through from, from York Way and the Maiden Lane Estate into kind of Camden Town, uh, which currently is, um, you know, is, is you can't walk through because there's a big, there's the Eurostar track um, that goes north-south and um, then the streets are also very windy. So you have this big entrance at Camden Gardens. We will have a huge uh, civic flight of steps that go up through the arches and you'll see it on the south side as you come up from Camden Road Station but it goes through the arch and back round on the other side, on the north side, so that also from Kentish Town, um, you'll see it on the north side. And one of the key things with the entrances was that they have to act as a kind of signal that there's something going on up there, because you could easily walk around um, on the street level and not know that it was accessible. So they're a, a very vibrant shade of pink, a kind of fuchsia pink. You'll be able to see it from quite a distance. And we try to make it evident wherever possible um, that um, the stairs themselves may be used as viewing platforms, um, that you, you can look up and see people up there as much as you're, they're looking down onto, onto the street. But also, we also, in many places, we're looking for um, little overlooks, little balconies, um, anything that we can do so that when you're, when you're walking around um, in Camden, you can look up and see some activity up there. The parapets are quite high. So you you know you you just see the the tops of people's heads. You can you can barely see up there when you're on the street. Um, and accessibility has been a really key um, part of the design thinking around all of the entrances. Um, we wanted the experience of somebody um, in a wheelchair or somebody with a buggy um, uh, or somebody who just you know can't walk up quite a quite a large number of steps because it, it's you know it's eight meters up um, we wanted that experience to be as exciting and fun as the experience of walking up the stairs and kind of winding through these historic structures 
So the lifts are um, have a sort of transparent um, lift car, um, and they're, they're sort of very wide and generous. And there's no, we're trying to eliminate having the lift shaft so that the lift um, just um, kind of moves up and down like a bubble um, against the side of the structure. And having this kind of level of transparency means that then as people are going up in the lift, they have these amazing views out. But also for safety reasons, if you're waiting for the lift at the top or the bottom, you can see who's in it um, and vice versa. So there's been a lot of a lot of thought around um, that strategy. Um, the, the stairs as well also have quite a lot of waiting places where you can, if, you know, you can go up a few steps and, and have a little sit down and then wait for a friend and then before you go up the rest of it. Um, and, uh, so all of, all of that's been, we've been thinking about accessibility on sort of many different levels. In terms of this as a piece of pedestrian infrastructure, is this the fastest route between Camden Town and King's Cross? Is this the, you know, the most, you mentioned how things are kind of cut out. Um, and was there ever kind of a thought, well, let's make this a cycling highway or let's make this, you know, kind of an express route? Um, or, you know, are you thinking um, about the design of uh, of that walkway encouraging you know less direct or less fast um of traveling because you talked about lookout points or pause points along there so are we moving quickly are we moving slowly are we doing both um and and can and and can bikes uh take their super fast commute route uh through it simon do you want to talk about bikes i know it's your favorite but thank you so much um yes yeah, well, we 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 try to uh, not get too caught up in the bike debate. I mean, they don't have bikes in New York or or Paris. Um, they very specifically don't allow them. Um, I think that it has been designed more to meander than to bomb. Um, and uh, it, so, it, 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 I, I think I think it, bi- bikers will be deterred, frankly, particularly if it's kind of fairly heavily used by pedestrians. It won't be a great place to have a have a, a, a bombing route. Um, we're not going to have police up there, sort of, you know, stopping people. But you're also going to have to get your bike up there. You know, it's not it, it, it's a, it, it's quite a way up. So I think there's enough cycling provision at ground level that I think it, um, cyclists won't, won't be um, that interested in using it. But I do think that, for example, when you're at York Way, um, the route to Camden Road Overground Station, particularly once we get the oyster barriers on the platform, on the eastbound platform there, it'll actually bring that Camden Road overground station much closer to King's Cross. So it's a slightly mixed answer. And in terms of the fastest uh, place to get, I mean, if you're going to the sort of southernmost part of King's Cross, you probably want to go on the canal where you're also going to encounter cyclists. Um, I I mean, one of the things when we do these walks, it must have done nearly 2,000 people have come on these walks and there's always... Uh, they're groups of, you know, 15 people. And um, there's always someone that says, can I take my bike up there? And 14 other people go, no, because they're um, generally local people are quite upset with how dominant cyclists are on the canal. Um, so, you know, that's a long winded way of saying no. <laughs> I was thinking about the canal, actually, um, because it's it's kind of an interesting uh, thing where the canal towpaths are not expressly designed for cyclists, but um, they are lovely to cycle unless, uh, you know, but if you're walking and a cyclist bombs past you, that's not always lovely too. And I'm always like, why don't we just design it so that there's one space for cyclists and space for 
for pedestrians. We can each have our own lane and everyone will be happy. Um, when you when you look at this, uh, the widths, I know that this was a, a thing about it. It can be very wide and then suddenly very narrow. I don't know, Tatiana, maybe that's over to you as a kind of a design challenge, but I was looking at your documents and am I right in saying it can be as little as a, a as 1.2 meters wide in parts and then all of a sudden you've got these grand uh openings yeah i mean it's 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 very varied um i think one thing i would say is that the roots along it that the kind of where the path should go versus the planting there's not a lot of room for um design iterations it's pretty much set by the parameters of the the site so at its very widest, um, it, it, it widens out to about 20 metres, which is around um, Camden Road Station and Camden Gardens. And that's because there used to be another platform there. So that was that would have been a fourth platform um, as well as the rails. And so that gives it that kind of extra width. And that provides opportunity to put uh, sort of uh, trees to the north side, which can't go against the um, live railway because of overhanging branches. So the trees have to go up the north side. And it also provides some areas for um, some breakout space and kind of social space, um, some seating, um, very small space for small events um, and um, uh, some art um, artworks and so forth. But mo the majority of the viaduct, it there's about eight meters of space, so that pretty much gives you your, um, you know, your width for a, a wheelchair and a person walking alongside, and then a bit of planting on either side. It's not it's not super generous. Um, and in addition to that, Network Rail have quite a lot of uh, boxes and cables and all kinds of uh, railway furniture up there, and we can't touch any of that. We have to leave a meter around all of those things. So the path naturally starts to meander between those objects. And um, the objects are quite, some of them are quite interesting in themselves. Some of them are just metal boxes um, and network rail don't really know what's in some of them or, or they claim not to know. They claim not to know whether the cables um, are live or not. And so the idea is generally better not cut it just in case. Um, so we, it's very, um, you know, it's a, it's a very sensitive approach in a way in that we really, there's almost no demolition up there. Um, we're cutting very small areas out of, um, at a few entrances where, where we need to enter so tiny little sections. Um, and most of the, um, planting will be over the top of, of the existing ground, um, so it's, you know, it's from a circular economy point of view, from a sustainability point of view, there's, there's very, very little demolition. It's really using what's there and touching very little. Um, but uh, th th those are the main constraints, really, the having to have the trees to the north side and then the, the very narrow width. So 1.2 metres is just in one place near Maiden Lane State where it gets incredibly narrow. Um, and, um, you know, maybe there's scope there to, to improve that width. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty tight. 
I don't know which one of you is best place to talk about, but I, I'm quite interested in the biodiversity of the site about what's there existing. Is it quite, you know, scrubby and poor? Is there, is there life that's found its way um, into those spaces that, you know, that you're keen to kind of retain? And then what happens, you know, ultimately, you know, are there ambitions in terms of, of wildlife and flora and fauna um, in terms of the strategy going forward? Well, uh, the London Wildlife Trust did the, the a biodiversity report that we had to do for planning. And actually, I mean, this is, shows my naivety, really. I thought if you leave a place to rack and ruin for 35 years, it becomes naturally very biodiverse. Apparently not so. Partly there's contamination up there from the diesel trains, but partly it's just a sort of weird straight line site with lots of breaks in it. And so it's been dominated by a couple of species. So we can sort of dramatically improve the biodiversity of the site relatively easily just with some careful planting and Pete Odorf, who's the planter in the team is very into um, that sort of rewilding aspect of things, as you know. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it's a really exciting opportunity actually, not despite the, um, uh, the constraints that Tatiana uh, uh, talks about. I think we, we've got some really nice opportunities there as well. Part of the design um, incorporates a lot of things like insect propels and, and various things to encourage wildlife. So I think it will become, um, you know, an important route as well, not just for, for people, but for, for species to move from one green space to another. So in a way, this is a meanwhile use and that span is 30 years. Is that the duration of that? lease? Uh, well, the, 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 the lease is for um, 25 years, but they have like 15 year breaks in it. And, you know, we, we've really got to as I say, we'll understand how network, we'd never get anywhere if we didn't kind of work with the grain of network rail. Um, and it's very important, I think. And again, I think our experience of running the other charity I was talking about, Camden Collective, has helped us there. We've been all about, um, meanwhile, and understanding the needs of the people who ultimately own the land um, and working with the grain of that. Yeah, well, and I think it's a kind of a powerful, it speaks to kind of a, a, a the power of the initiative because there are many um, challenges here, not least this, even this kind of psychology. Meanwhile, use that could have made any of you give up at some point. I, th <laughs> I think I, I, I come back to the business improvement district point. I think because we sit in this slight, this rather unique space. If we were a local authority trying to do it, absolutely we wouldn't. If we were, um, I mean, a commercial developer might, but you know, it would be harder. But because we understand risk and are prepared to take it because by and large, it's not that huge a risk. Um, I, I, th I think we can do things that others can't. I kind of, I wish more bids did. Well, and in addition, I mean, if Network Rail wants it back, presumably it's because they want to build more train stations and no one's going to begrudge better connectivity in that time scale. But the likelihood of them needing a whole other rail line right next to another one seems... And it's also, it's a constrained site, not just in, in terms of the, the, you know, it doesn't go anywhere at either end. So it, 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 it is, it is fairly unlikely, but it, you know. They're keeping their the options brain. open. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask, so it is constrained on either end. There isn't a, a possibility for it to become a, a, a larger piece of infrastructure. Is that kind of the end of it? It, it, it's very constrained. You, you, yeah, you, it does sort of run out at either end. It was never built, really, the additional bits. Um, you possibly could do something at the York Way end into Islington, but it would be a big project. I mean, you know, I guess in New York, they have found ways of doing that. Um, and once these things become uh, really successful, then 
the imperative there is, uh, or the imperative is there. But I, 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 we're not really thinking like that. I think we we think of it as one one park really. I would say though that the the kind of kit of parts and the approach to the design is definitely applicable to other sites. Um, you know, within London or outside of London. And of course there are, you know, there are other projects for, for um, parks on viaducts, um, but there are probably a lot of other sites out there as well that could, could um, benefit from a use like this. Patiana, talk about the kit of parts because we haven't um, addressed that. This is kind of a, a modular system of tables and, and, and flooring. Yes. So um, there, there are various different, um, you know, uh, kits, in a way, um, everything has to be dismantleable because of this uh, 25-year lease. So, and the circular economy was a very important part of the brief. So, everything has to be mechanically be able to be mechanically dismantled and re-erected somewhere else and reused, um, including the lifts and the stairs and everything. Uh, the um, paving is a kind of planking system. Uh, another constraint that I hadn't mentioned before is that nothing can be metal up there. The stairs can be because they're far enough away from the live rail, but anything near the overhead electric lines has to be wood or plastic, basically, um, uh, so that people can't get electrocuted. Um, so the the paving is a is a kind of mesh um, uh, glass reinforced plastic, um, and that allows potentially some grasses and plants to grow up through areas of it. So it kind of softens the edges um, that comes in these kind of planks and they sit on um, a structure which in fact I think um, the idea is that they're going to sit on railway sleepers to keep them off the ground so that when they're then removed the railway sleepers can be reused for presumably new tracks that may go in at some point um, so it's all been you know that's all been quite carefully thought about um, also, the, the the paving needs to be able to be removable very easily so that all of these cables and things that I mentioned before can be easily um, accessed in, in case there's a, a problem. Um, and uh, the other, I suppose the other elements to the, the kit would be the, the planting and the soil. Um, some of the soil may be brought up in these kind of large bags, which you know, a couple of men can, can, can bring up. Um, and then the bags just kind of sit there in, in the group to provide the soil. So that's in some areas. Um, and in other areas, there'll be a membrane with, with soil on top of that. Um, so uh, the, the benches and, um, you know, other, other design elements also um, are made, you know, made from uh, a, a kind of set of um, standard sizes that then can be configured to make larger seating steps or smaller benches and so forth. So it's all all part of this sort of kit of parts idea. Well, Georgie, I feel like we need to come back to you. I just, uh, I wanted to ask you about looking at this kind of wider um, green loop. Uh, what do you feel this could really bring to, to Camden and to the people there? Um, you know, is this about people who are discovering Camden for the first time? Or is this really about, you know, the, the citizens there being able to kind of, I don't know, engage more fruitfully with, um, with the green infrastructure? Yeah, I think um, 
you know, importantly, the Green Loop really recognises that sometimes our public spaces aren't fulfilling their roles um, and meeting the needs of local communities properly. So it's about inviting local people to have a very real influence on how those public spaces are developed. Um, we have partnered with Footways to create a new map of the Camden Green Loop, and that really makes it kind of a very accessible vision for the future of the neighbourhood. It's about mapping out where the walking routes um, and cycling routes already exist, how our green spaces and communities are linked up. But it also offers a platform for people to recognise where those walking routes aren't really fulfilling their roles and where they don't um, properly serve communities. So it's it's a really kind of democratic approach really to, to co-design and, and it's about kind of valuing the um, lived experience of local people and asking them to come together with design experts um, to help shape our neighbourhoods that in a way that kind of properly benefits them. There are areas of Camden that, you know, where antisocial behavior or crime or or if just actually even perception of safety have been an issue. Is that something that the Green Loop looks to tackle? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, lots of the um, project proposals that have come out of our co-design workshops so far have been about things like creative street furniture and lighting and Antisocial behaviour and kind of criminal behaviour or anything that makes a space feel intimidating is always something that local residents or people who use those spaces have at the forefront of their mind. So it's very much something that we want to build into um, all of our proposals. Um, and I think it's something that really kind of shapes how or whether someone is willing to use a public space, how they kind of perceive that it's already being used. Um, so, yes, absolutely making places feel more inclusive and safe is kind of a, a central value of the Camden Green Loop. Simon, I'm going to bring it back to you. You know, the High Lines, the ones that you've mentioned um, are tourist attractions in many of these uh, cities. Um, and I guess there's that sense Camden is already, you know, a, a, a somewhere on the kind of visitor to London's uh, map. How much of this uh, development is for local people? How much of it um, is a, a tourism drawn? Is there a tension between those two? I mean, I think, yeah, I think inevitably it, anywhere there is a tension between people who, who live and visit and work in, in any town centres, really. Um, I think what's so, so and, and, but you know, if you're just building something like the Highline just for local people, you can never justify the expense. So, you know, it doesn't exist unless you've got that greater incentive. It's one of the things, you know, I think if you look at the other parts of the country that are trying to build these sorts of things, they struggle with the fact that they don't already have some kind of footfall and, and, and Camden and King's Cross to some extent are very grateful for that. And I think the demographics of visitors to King's Cross and, and Camden are quite different. And I think that's also quite an interesting um, mixing up those two things. I also think that this is, um, and one of the reasons I think the Mayor of London's a big supporter, is that in our post-Brexit, post-pandemic world, these sorts of things are quite important to big cities, um, not just for the, all the environmental and social benefits that we know and understand, but about having a city like London finding its place again um, on the sort of map as it's being redrawn. And um, most big cities that London competes with have got something like this. Um, so I think it's kind of essential for all the reasons, plus that bigger kind of international one. 
that just leaves me to thank you three for sharing with me this ambitious and exciting project for Camden. Uh, congratulations on winning planning. I think that's a huge achievement and best of luck for the next bit, which is raising money, I assume. Simon, what's happening now? That's the deal. We're raising the money. We're doing, we're doing quite well, but yeah, it's always about, you know, can we get the money? So if there are any listeners, where do I direct them? CamdenHighline.com um, or Simon at CamdenHighline.com. Brilliant. Well, thank you all and uh, hope to catch up with you when that first phase is complete. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the developer UK. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.